This evening, I want to speak to you about the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the task in front of us uh, is both impossible and important. It is impossible because the Lord Jesus Christ is God. And so he's infinite in his glory and majesty. He's not just glorious in his personhood, he's glorious in his work. So we, we, we are not going to learn everything about the greatness of Christ. I mean, that's what the Bible speaks to us every single day we read it. All of scripture points to who Jesus is. All right? So it's, it's, it's an impossible task to cover it in 42, 45 minutes. And that means, of course, because of the wonder of who Christ is, there's nothing more important for us to know than to know how to grow in appreciating the amazing greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The more we appreciate the greatness of Jesus, the more we grow in giving him the honor, uh, the worship, and the love he is worthy of, isn't it? The greater Jesus is in our eyes, the greater we'll grow in relying on him in every situation in our lives. We'll find joy and peace in him. If you're struggling in living for God, what's the issue? It's because Jesus is so little in your eyes. The greater Christ is, the more we want to live for him. The more we are at peace and contented in him. The greater the Lord Jesus Christ is, the more we will look for opportunity to tell others about him. We will live to proclaim his name, as Charles Wesley, I think, says in the hymn we just sang. This evening, we have come to a passage uh, that encourages us to grow in knowing the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please look with me there at Luke chapter 3, verse 15 to 17. Now, just prior to these verses, um, just prior to verse 15, uh, we have seen that people from all walks of life have been flocking to the edge of the Judean desert. To hear the sermons of the theory, John the Baptist, and with his strange clothing, John has been preparing the people of the people of Israel for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's doing that by calling on them to truly repent, and and show that they have truly repented by living changed lives and showing that. Uh, particularly doing it publicly uh, through baptism, showing that clearly. It's not just a private repentance, but a public repentance. That's what's so important we understand that. It's, John doesn't just want people to say privately <laughs> that they are waiting for the Messiah. This has to be a public thing. They must show that they are truly people of the coming king, waiting for the coming king by publicly repenting. And one way they show that is by going through the waters of the baptism of John. And the more these people hear John's sermon, right, and they see his large following, the more their hope-filled whispers grow, right? And they're asking among themselves and, 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 and whispering to themselves, they're asking, is this the man? 
we've been waiting for. Is John the answer to all our problems? Could it be that John is the man who has now been sent by God to be the long-awaited savior of Israel? Is John the Christ? John, of course, has heard the rumors. And in verse 16 to 17, he corrects them that he's not the Messiah, he's not the Christ. The Messiah is coming, but he is far greater than John. Look at verse 15 to 17. Let's just read those verses again. As the people were filled with expectation, messianic expectations, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The person John is talking about who is coming, who is greater than him, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Luke has included verse 15 to 17 in his record of the life of Jesus to teach Theophilus about the greatness of Christ. And there are three truths here we learn from John about why Jesus is so great. Three of them. And they are in our outline. First, Jesus is so great because Jesus is a great life server. Secondly, Jesus is our great life giver and Jesus is our great life judge. Let's look at each of these three truths we learn from John in turn. First, Jesus is great because Jesus is our great life saver. He's our great life saver. You know, I often take my daughter for swimming lessons at Crook Log. And when, I, when we're there, one of the people who must always be by the swimming pool for the sessions, they can't happen if they're not there. They must be there for the sessions to take place, and that is the lifeguard or the life server. Sometimes they call them life servers, sometimes just lifeguard. You know, I've never seen the lifeguards do anything <laughs> since I've been there. That's good. We shouldn't laugh at that. That's a good thing. I'm glad they haven't done anything when, when they're there. I, I, sometimes I think this is a great job. You just sit there. But I'm sure a time will come when they're needed, so it's good that they're there. I'm glad I haven't seen them do anything. Um, but I do get worried because the other day, I, I was worried when I saw a lifesaver who looked, wow, let's just say they were like my size. They, they looked unfit like me. <laughs> and I was like, I can do this, right? <laughs> we want lifesavers to be the most fit people because they stand between life and death. We live in a world that is broken where accidents happen. And the Bible says we don't just need a lifesaver at the sports center or at the beach. We need a lifesaver all the time. We need, in fact, a spiritual lifesaver above all else. Because all of us are in what? Spiritual danger. We are all of us born into this way in danger from God. Uh, God is angry with everyone. Because we have broken his law. We have sinned in Adam. And we continue to sin all the time. And when we die, God is going to punish every sinner in hell forever. So all of us need 
And all of us are sinners. So all of us need a lifesaver who can rescue us from who? Who can rescue us from God? From God. Who can rescue us from the judgment of God? By saving us from our sin against God. And making us the people of God again. And the wonderful news of the Bible, the wonderful news of of the Lord Jesus is that God in the Old Testament promised the people of Israel that he was going to send them this life server. And this life server is called the Christ. And in Luke chapter 3 verse 15 to 17, we see that the people of Israel have been waiting for this life server to come. And they are starting to think that John the Baptist is the Christ, is the life saver. Look at verse 15 again. And the people were filled with expectation. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, whether he might be the life saver. Because you see, the Christ, the word Christ, is the Greek word for Messiah, the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed. You see, in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed by God. What do I mean by that? Well, they had oil poured on their heads as a sign of commissioning them for their roles as, as, as prophets, as priests, and kings, right? And we might even say that they were messiahed, right? They were messiahed as prophets, priests, and kings. God had appointed them to the office of the Christ. But he did that on a short-term basis. They were like agency staff. You know, sometimes at work, you, you are bank staff, isn't it? They come in. They are not permanent members of the workplace. They are agency. They are not permanent there. But they are there to do a job. Think of the prophets, priests, and kings as agency staff of the Old Testament. They were not permanent life savers. Their feet were too small to fill in the boots of the office of the Messiah. God had promised that one day, you would send someone permanent. You would send the Christ, the true and final life server. And this person would be greater than all the kings, all the prophets, all the priests of the Old Testament combined. And he would come to save us from our sins and to rule over us. As, 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 a, as a prophet, you deliver the truth. As a priest, you make atonement. For our sin. And as a king, he rule over us. Now, the people are hoping that John the Baptist is this lifesaver, is this Christ. But John doesn't dash their hopes, right? John actually raises their hopes. <laughs> he redirects the hopes from himself to upwards to this one who's greater, far greater than John. Look at verse 16. John answered them all, saying, Yeah, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. What is John saying? John is saying, I am not the Christ. I am not the Savior you are waiting for. I am just a warmer bat, a trailer for the main event. Someone is coming to save you who is far greater than me. This true life server is on the way. The one whom all the prophets... All the priests and all the kings pointed to is coming. And he's spiritually heavier than me. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You know, at this time in history, the task of loosening the sandals, untying the shoelaces, we might call it, 
uh, was performed by the lowliest of slaves. You know, the rabbis, they asked their students to do many things, but one of the things the rabbis couldn't ask their students, didn't ask their students, was to untie the shoelace, to untie the sandals, right? To loosen the sandals. That was because his task was only done by the lowliest of slaves. But John is saying he is not even worthy to do that. He is not even worthy to be the lowliest of slaves for the lifesaver who is coming. For the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we sometimes look at this passage and we say John is humble. I think that's wrong. John is humble, but that's there are other passages that speaks to that, but not that statement. This is not John being humble. This is John simply recognizing the fact. Me saying God is God, I'm not being humble. He is God. This is John recognizing that Christ is infinitely greater than him because Christ is God. He is God himself wearing our human flesh. We, 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 we have learned that truth already, right, in the first two chapters. We've seen the angels declare that the one coming is Christ the Lord. We've seen Elizabeth proclaim, as, as she looked at Mary's womb, she says, the, uh, the mother of my Lord. The divinity of Christ has been underlined throughout. So this is John. Luke inserts this, this response of John to underpin that, yeah, Christ is God himself. And John recognized that. Jesus is greater than John because in Jesus, God is now here among us as our true prophet, our true priest, and our true king. He is our great life saver. Now, why does John the Baptist, do you think, think the people need to hear this truth? Well, for the same reason all of us here need to hear it. All of us here are sinners under the wrath of God. And John is saying to us, you are not naturally on good terms with God because you are a sinner. You are in danger of the punishment of God against sinners. And there is no one who can rescue you. I can't rescue you, says John. I cannot save you. That, that task is far too greater. I am not the lifesaver. Only the Lord Jesus can save you. He is the true life saver. And as we read on in Luke, we see that the Lord Jesus, our life saving Christ, saves us as our prophet, priest, and king by his life, his perfect life that he lived, by his wondrous death on the cross, where he bled and died for our sins as our perfect priest, and by his resurrection, where he now stands. He now gives us new life by his resurrection. And of course we can say the Lord Jesus saves us by his ascension. And his session. And of course his second coming. But fundamentally, there on that cross, broken for our sins, stands Christ, isn't it? As, 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 a, as our ultimate prophet, priest, and king. The crowd needed to hear this, to, 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 to look to to Jesus, to, 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 to prepare them to become true followers of Jesus. Theophilus needs to hear it, Luke has recorded it, to, as, a, as a believer already, to, 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 to keep on following Jesus. And if you're a true follower of Jesus this evening, 
You need to hear this truth to be reminded that Jesus is your lifesaver because you don't always live with this truth in mind. Oh friends, we know Jesus is our life-saving prophet. We know Jesus is the only sacred repository of all truth. You know he possesses all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And yet, friends, how often we are prone to rely on our own thinking instead of his words. We are prone to be our own false prophet instead of trusting the true prophet. We know Jesus is our life-serving priest, don't we? You know Jesus is God wearing our human flesh to be our once and for all sacrifice before God for our sin. You have had enough sermons to, I'm sure, remind you of that truth. You know that the resurrected Jesus is in the presence of God the Father. He is there as your high priest. He is there as your ever-living advocate and intercessor. And yet, friends, I'm sure you agree with me. How often we are prone to feel alone. How often we feel abandoned and despairing in life. How often our lives are burdened by the weight of self-reliance instead of looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, instead of looking to him, our perfect high priest. We know Jesus is our life-serving king, don't we? You know our king will never fail you. He has never failed you. You know that. He's always been there for you. You know you are safe in him. And you know that Christ, ever since you turned to him, has always provided for you. He has supplies all your needs according to his riches in glory. You know that in him, you have all you need for life and godliness. You know that. You can testify to that. And yet, friend, if you are like me, you know that despite all that knowledge... When you are overwhelmed by the demands of life. Oh, friend, how easily you complain. How easily you mourn. How how easily you quietly say, when is the Lord going to give me, let me breathe for a while. You are prone to be your own life saver. You want things your own way. And you know, you often measure success in your life based on your objectives rather than the objectives of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, is that you this evening? And it is yes, it's all of us, isn't it? Well then, let us listen again to the words of John the Baptist there in verse 16. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Oh, friends, how Lord Jesus has no equal, John is saying. He is infinitely great in power and glory. No one can compare to him. And John is reminding us there, isn't it, that Christ came specifically to be our Christ, to be our Savior, to be your true prophet, your true priest, your true king. He came to be our life-serving Christ forever. So what do we do this evening? Well, let us repent, isn't it? 
Let us repent of looking to self. Let us repent of trying to be our own lifesaver. Of trying to be our own false prophet. Of trying to be our own false priest. Of trying to be our own false king. Let us repent of looking to others. Whoever they are. The people look to John. You are probably looking to your spouse to satisfy. You are probably looking to your children to satisfy. You are probably looking... Well, many people don't look to the church to satisfy them. But it's possible. You are probably looking to the church to satisfy. Friend, let us go to Jesus, John is saying. Don't look to me, John is saying. Don't look to you. Look to him. Look to Jesus. Let us go to Jesus our Christ, and ask him to help us to live for him and him alone. To recognize he alone is a lifesaver. Because that's why he came, friends. Friends, there's nothing that Jesus did that was for himself. Christ has no needs. Christ came for his bride, the church. Everything Jesus did, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his session, his intercessory work, his second coming that he would do. The new heaven, the new earth, everything he's doing is for his bride, the church. It's for your benefit. So look to him. Jesus our God willingly became our Christ for us, our friends, so that we can have him, not just once, but forever as our true life server. To enjoy him as, as, as our prophet, our priest, and our king. That's the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the first thing we learn from here. Jesus is great because Jesus is our great life saver. Here's the second thing we learn from here. Jesus is not just our great life saver. Jesus is our great life giver. He's our great life giver. Imagine, I usually have asked you before, imagine a person under death penalty who is also infected with a terminal illness, right? If this person is simply released from prison, right? This is a thought experiment. He's under death penalty. If he's simply released from, he's under death penalty, right? But he's also infected with the illness, right? So if he's simply released from prison, it won't do him any good, right? Why? Because he's going to die, isn't it? He's going to die. If he's just cured of his disease, it won't matter because he's going to be executed anyway. In order to, what do we need to do to save that man? Well, to save that man, in order to save the man, we, we, he needs to be released from prison and he needs to be healed. He needs pardon and life. Pardon and life. Friends, you are that person. You need God not only to forgive your sin against him by Jesus dying for you on the cross. You need God to give you new life by living in you, breathing his spirit in you. Jesus is great because Jesus is God giving life to all who trust him. John the Baptist said. Look at verse 16 again. John answered them more saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you 
with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What is John saying? John is saying, all the work I am doing is just a warm-up act for the real event. The work that Jesus is coming to do. What is Jesus coming to do? Well, he's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, isn't it? Which means immense Jesus. Jesus, God the Son, has come to immense us in God the Spirit. Jesus has come to dress you in the Holy Spirit of God from head to toe. To wrap you around in the life-giving power of the Spirit of God. He has come to fulfill Joel 2 verse 28 to 21 of God pouring out his Holy Spirit on all who follow Jesus. Friends, this is the greater work of Jesus. is the life-giving Christ. And this is the point Luke is making, isn't it? Look, he's saying Jesus is great because he is God who has power to wrap us around the life-giving power of God the Holy Spirit. Only God can give the Holy Spirit. That's the logic of this text. Only God can give the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus, God the Son, can breathe God the Holy Spirit in us. Only the Logos of God can, can, can put spiritual flesh on dead bones. Jesus is great because he has the power to plug us into the very spiritual life of God so that we can live in union with God. We can be baptized in God. When does this baptism of the Holy Spirit take place? The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the moment you are converted. The baptism by Jesus is the new birth we receive when we are born again. Friends, it's important we understand that the baptism of the Spirit is not some second blessing we receive at the moment, we, we, receive, we receive elsewhere. At some stage in our Christian world, we are converted and we are baptized in the Spirit. Friends, that's a terrible error. John is clear. This is the beginning of the work of Christ. You've got to understand that the baptism of John is a summary for all that John is doing. And John is saying, just as the baptism, my baptism is a summary of what I'm doing, the baptism of Christ that he brings by the Spirit is a summary of his work. But it's a greater work because this is true conversion that Christ brings. All of that is to say, if you're a true follower of Jesus, if you have repented of your sin, you only did that because God breathed his Holy Spirit into you. He baptized you in his spirit. He regenerated you. He gave you life, friends. Of course, this is not to say that later on in our spiritual work, there are not moments where we grow in surrendering more. We often pour, we, post, we, we read Paul say, be filled with the Spirit. What does Paul mean by that? He said, grow in trust in the Word of God. Grow in surrendering more to the work of the Spirit in your life. How do we see that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives? We see the Holy Spirit working by us growing in radical dependence on Him. The Spirit-filled believer is a person who say... <laughs> Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross of Christ I cling, right? Is a person who would say, I am depending on Christ and Christ alone. If you are a true follower of Jesus, you have already been baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
The Lord Jesus, our God, is your great life-giving spirit. But why has Luke included in this truth for, from John for Theophilus? Why is he here? Well, why are we being told Jesus is our great life giver? Well, because Luke wants, wants Theophilus and us to know that trusting in Jesus is a lived experience, friends. It's a lived experience. Being a Christian is not simply holding on to certain propositional truths. So it's not simply learning some facts about who Jesus is. Oh, friends, we must understand that at the point at which we become true believers, at that point of conversion, something fundamental happens to us. We are regenerated. Faith is a gift of the Spirit as it breathes new life into us. The Lord Jesus immenses us in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and we become spiritually alive in Him, in Christ, dressed in the Holy Spirit. See, before we came to know Jesus, we were cut off from the life of God. We were spiritually dead. We were without God and without hope in the world, right? But when the Holy Spirit, the wind blows wherever it, 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 it pleases. And when, when the Holy Spirit makes us born again, we become alive, don't we? God is now living in us by faith in Christ. And we are now living in the Holy Spirit. That's what, that's what Paul tells the church, doesn't he? At Thessalonica, in both verse 1 and chapter 2 of the first two letters, right? To the church of God at Thessalonica, in God. He's speaking of our union in Christ, isn't it? Because you see, the Holy Spirit doesn't just make us trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit now unites us to God through Jesus. We now live in union with God in Christ. And that's why Peter can write in that second letter and says, His divine power has granted to us all things. Why? Because we are now in spiritual union with Christ. You can speak of us being partakers of the divine nature. Not being God, but being in that union with God through Christ. Listen, you can never be God. You can never even be a little God. God will always be God. But the wonder of the gospel is that God in Christ brings us into union with him. You know, our faith union... With God is permanent. This is why a believer can never lose their salvation. Why? Because this is a shift from death to life. Once you have life, you cannot die. But it's more than that. It's not just shift from death to life. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's union. <laughs> like in marriage, isn't it? Husband and wife become one flesh. Well, we are now united with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So our salvation is permanent now if we're trusting in Jesus. It can never be broken. And oh friends, what amazing grace this is. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Dear friends, think about this truth for a minute. Let it sink in. I mean, we hear too many sermons sometimes. I wonder in this church, like, we hear so many sermons. And I worry sometimes, are we taking in what we are hearing? Have you, just, have you taken in what I've just said? That you live in union with God if you're trusting in Him. You, who is born in sin, has now been saved 
given new life and united to God in Christ. You share life with God in Christ. This God who is completely holy. He has forgiven all of your sins and united you in him. Are you, are you hearing that? Are you, are you taking that in? Are you letting that sink in, what that means? Do you understand that God has done this? Not because you deserve it. Even now you still sin against him. Even now we doubt him. Even now we often live as hypocrites. And yet God has submerged us in his spirit. God is now with us to care for us with his very self. His grace is flowing to us by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, through this is the life-giving greatness of Jesus. No one can satisfy us as Jesus does. Because no one can give us the the divine power that Christ makes available to us every day as we live in union with him. No one gives us the love of God that the life-giving Christ gives us. In him we are now fully sufficient, fully protected, fully assured, fully loved forever. Are you letting that sink in? What it means for you tomorrow as you are at a difficult workplace, as you seek to parent your kids. Friends, let that sink in. Let this truth of the greatness of the life-giving Jesus drive you even right now to whisper heartfelt thanks to Jesus. To tell him, oh, I am so blessed to call you mine, as the hymn writer says. I am so blessed to have you as my complete savior. Not a half savior. A complete savior. Tell him, Jesus, you are truly great for me. The greatness of Christ. And show that... That you are thankful for this life-giving power of Jesus by repenting of looking to other things to give you life or power. Resolve now to to look only only to this lifesaver, to only to this life-giving Christ, and ask Him to grow your trust in Him every single day, in whatever situation you find yourself in. Friends, what this truth says to me is that because Christ has submerged us. In the Holy Ghost, as it were, we are never without power. Because Christ, the Holy Spirit is always there to work his power for us. We can always cry out to him. We can always seek his face. In whatever situation we're in, this brings hope. This brings excitement. This brings, wow, what else do we need apart from the triune God working for us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus is great because he's God with us as our life-saving Christ and as our life-giving Christ. And here is the third reason why Jesus is so great. There are two reasons. Here is the third reason. Jesus is great because Jesus is our great life judge. Jesus is our great life judge. What do I mean by that? I mean that the Lord Jesus came not only to save us from God's wrath and to give us new life with God, he also came to be the judge of the human race. Look at verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand 
to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What's going on in this passage? Well, essentially, John the Baptist is picturing the Lord Jesus as the divine farmer. Um, some years back, I, I spent quite some time on my own just looking at the images of Jesus in the Bible. And I did that for the images of God as well. And it's quite interesting. Uh, but I, I don't remember thinking about this particular image. But this image is a, it's a, it's an interesting exercise. I encourage you to do that, see what you learn from that. But here John pictures Jesus as a divine farmer. And this divine farmer is standing on the threshing floor at the place where the harvested wheat is spread out, right? That's where Jesus, where, this is where the, the divine farmer is standing, the Lord Jesus. And he's holding a winnowing fork or a wood pitchfork, we might say, you know. He's holding it firmly in his hand. And he's ready for action, isn't it? And he, he, he takes this mixture of grain and, and chaff together. Now, the chaff is, is, is a dry husks surrounding the wheat, right? And so our divine farmer tosses it up, isn't it, into the air. And as the wind blows, the lighter chaff is carried away into the fire. That's the image we have here. A never-ending fire. The heavier grain, of course, what happens to the heavier grain? It falls back down. Don't miss that. I missed it the first time I read this verse. I always focus on the, what's happening with the chaff. Don't miss what's happening to the wheat. The wheat falls back down. That's so important, friends. It is collected by the divine farmer. He takes it home with him to enjoy as fruit of his hands. What is John saying to us? John is saying this is what the Lord Jesus has come to do. He is the divine farmer who has come to judge every single person in the world. The winnowing folk, that is the, represents the judgment of the Lord Jesus. And John is saying, Jesus has come to judge every person in the world. Every person. There is a day of judgment coming for everyone after God raises us up from the dead. Everyone will rise from death. Revelation 20 verse 13. Then Jesus will judge us. He will judge everyone. Jesus is a judge on that day because of John 5 verse 22. Every person will be judged. The final judgment will include followers of Jesus. We know that because of Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15. All of us will face the winnowing fork of his judgment. And those found guilty will be condemned by Christ to continue their terrible punishment forever in hell. They will continue to suffer everlasting fire. They are the chaff. John... In verse 17, right? Or oh, I should track back a little bit there. Those of us, of course, I've talked about the chaff, right? Those of us who are true followers of Christ, of course, on that great day will be acquitted. That's a, that's a bit you want to hear, isn't it? We'll be acquitted based on the work of Christ. How can I miss that? We will live with Christ in heaven forever. So the chaff returned to hell to suffer eternally. And, well, we enter the new heaven, the new earth, where righteousness dwell. Out from the dust we come to reign. John in verse 17 is teaching us that this is what Jesus Christ, Jesus our Christ has come to do. He is God coming to judge every human life. He is the life judging Christ. 
the great, it's important, this, this verse is so important. When, you know, when you read passages in the Bible, one of the things you should be asking yourself when you're studying a particular passage, right? Just bonus. This is a bit of a bonus. One of the things you should be asking yourself is that it's very good to ask yourself, what does this passage add that if it wasn't here, we would miss? Perhaps not quite get from the Bible. I'm sure other parts of the Bible may speak to it. But what, what is this adding to the canon of Scripture? What truth is particularly unique to this verse? And I think one the truth that is particularly unique to this verse is this. The greatness of Jesus is not only in his life serving but in, and his life giving. It is also in his life judging. There is no verse that speaks to that more clearly bringing these two things we struggle with in life. The God, of love, the God of love and the God of wrath in one single verse. We might say John 3 verse 16 to, 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 to 19 perhaps does the same thing. But here is so out saying this is even more sharper, more clearly, isn't it? Because this is a crucial point that Luke is making. The greatness of Jesus is not only in his life serving and life giving, it is also in his life judging. And here is a, even another more crucial point of Luke 3 verse 17. It, it, is, it is saying this. Although the final judgment of Christ is yet to come, right? Christ is already at his threshing floor. He is already separating the wheat from the chaff. Don't miss that from the text. Right? Those who repent of their sin and trust in him are now his spiritual wheat. And when they die, he gathers them to himself to live with him in heaven. Those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, who refuse to accept him as our life-saving and our life-giving Christ, are judged already. That's the point Luke is making, or John is making. And of course, that's John the Baptist, but the Apostle John, in his record of the words of Jesus, says the same thing in that verse I alluded to, John 3, verse 16 to 19. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world, in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But listen to what happens to those who don't believe in him. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. The point, friends... Both in Luke and in John is that those who die without trusting in the Lord Jesus go straight to hell to suffer on remand until they are sentenced there in hell forever on judgment day. Luke 3 verse 17 is teaching us that the greatness of Jesus is that he is a divine farmer who brings his sins into heaven and punishes sinners in hell. Don't miss that dynamic. He gathers the wheat and he throws the chaff. Jesus would not be great if he let sinners go free. His dignity demands that he judges all who reject him by casting them into hell. It's so important you understand that it is God casting sinners into hell. And Jesus would not be great if he can't bring into heaven 
those who he has given new life. His greatness demands that his people live with him. Again we ask, what does Luke then expect Theophilus and us to do with this truth that Jesus is not only our life saver, is not only our life giver, but is also our life judging Christ who preserves his sense in heaven and punishes sinners in hell. What does Luke expect us to do with this? Two things and then I'll end. First, this truth is meant to encourage us, isn't it? To examine our lives. To examine our lives. Are you wheat or are you chaff? Are you a true Christian or are you a rebellious sinner? Friends, this is not a thing to, a question to assume. This question calls for earnest examination, no presumption about where we stand. But a clear examine ourselves. Ask yourself where you stand. Oh friend, don't look to your membership. Don't even look to attendance of an evening service. That's a wonderful thing. How I pray many of us would prioritize that. Don't assume it. Don't lean on that. Examine yourself. Where do you stand? Are you weak or are you chaff? And you know, John the Baptist hasn't left us, hasn't left us without things to use to examine ourselves because the verses we looked at last Sunday on true repentance are precisely designed to do that. They are leading up to this great question. How do I know if I am weak or chaff? Well, Luke is saying, what are your fruits? Are you showing evidence that Christ is your life saver and your, your life giver? Do you have fruits of a true repentant life? Friends, ask this of your children. Are they showing fruits of a repentant life? Don't presume. Ask it of your grandkids. Ask it of your friends. Ask it of your spouses. Are they showing fruits of a true repentant life? Are they growing in hating sin? Are they growing in loving God? Are they growing in loving others? Are they growing in being content with the blessing God has given them? Are they growing in, in, in regarding with human dignity? Are they growing in living a trustworthy life? These are the fundamental questions that John the Baptist has set before us. They are there, aren't they? In verse 7 to verse 14. Yes, we are familiar with Galatians, but we can be too abstract with the fruits of the Spirit. There we are given four, five tangible questions we can each ask ourselves where do we stand in this great question of our destiny? Are we wheat or are we chaff? That's a fundamental question. Only you can answer that. No one else can answer it for you. And I say if your situation is clear that you look at your life and you, 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 you you know that you are not growing in these fruits, then examine yourself, beloved. Come quickly before God, repent of your sin, and ask the Lord to truly save you if he hasn't. And if he has already saved you and just wallowing in, in backsliding nature, then ask him to renew you afresh. There are moments, friends, when we can fall so bad that we become indistinguishable from the completely depraved. How do I know that? Because Peter talks about that. In First Peter chapter 1. Even forgetting the Savior who has bought us. 
can happen to us in our backslidden nature. But if you're a true believer, God always brings you back, you see. Remember that union, the union we have with God. It can never be erased, and God brings us back on the path of life, as it were, renewing us and growing us again. So ask yourself, right? Ask yourself where you stand, and come in repentance before him. Let him confirm his calling and election in your life. Jesus, remember, is not only our great life saver and our great life giver, he's also our great life judge. And so we must not take him for granted, friends. We must examine ourselves and put our whole trust in him. First, so that's what we need to do. First, examine your life. And second, on our hand, if you are a true follower of Jesus, let this truth grow your resolve in living to honor the greatness of Jesus. That's what John wants us to do. He doesn't want us to look to anywhere else. He wants us to live honoring the greatness of Jesus. You know, we are living in a world that says the best life is now. It is a world where people have no hope beyond the grave. It's so tragic. No hope beyond the grave. It's a world without foundation. I was speaking to somebody today and he, he said it quite right. Like we are, we are on a sinking ship as it were. And everything is in flux. So everybody is clutching to this, clutching to this. Because the foundation has gone, you see. That's the world we live in now. And so many are living without any hope beyond the grave. They only live for now. And the world is saying to us, isn't it? As our herald often says, your law, isn't it? You only live once. That's what the world is saying. So focus on now. Your health. Focus on that. Focus on your job. Focus on having as much leisure as you can, as, as many holidays as you can, as many oh, oh, career plans as you can, as much Netflix as you can. Don't worry about Christ. Live for now. But Luke is saying to us, this worldly, pack it all mentality, wow, is for the chaff. It's for the chaff. It's nothing more than chaff preparing for the fires of hell. You already have a great future. Luke is reminding us. You already have a great future as a spiritual wheat of Christ. You are on your way to heaven. A place with no sin, no suffering, no death, no hell as it were. That's our future. You already have this great future. A future where everything that threatens you now... Everything that is ungodly, everything that's destructive, everything that's dangerous will come to an end. Friends, do you believe this or not? Do you believe it? Or are these just words? We have to believe it. It's the word of the living God and we have to live by it. We should desire to live by it. Yes, life at the moment feels unpredictable. Luke is indirectly saying, confusing calamities, but what you need is not your law, right? You need to keep looking to our great Jesus. Luke is saying, and John the Baptist is saying, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, the, word, the Bible says. Do not become sidetracked by the passing things of this world. Do not look to the John the Baptist or look to yourself. Do not look to technology. Do not look to any other things. All done to the great Jesus who has come as your life-giving Savior and your life-judging Christ. That is what will give you peace and comfort in this restless world. That's what you need. 
That's why you need. You need him to, as you grapple with the reality of a broken world, you need to keep your focus. Fix your gaze. Fix your focus on the great Christ. Amen.